Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. Before we get started today, I want to let uh, you all know that we're talking about guardrails in marriage, and so we're going to be talking about sex today. So if you have children in here who are elementary age or younger and you don't want to answer uncomfortable questions later, I would strongly encourage you to bring them back to Collective Kids. So we have an incredible environment set up that's specially designed for kids. They'll learn, they're going to have fun, they're going to be around other kids you actually want your kids to be around, and it's the best place for them to be this Sunday. In fact, it's actually the best place for them to be every single Sunday, because that space is designed for them. So to be honest, this gym is not created for kids fifth grade and under. I do not think about your fourth and fifth graders when I'm picking topics, why we're talking about sex today, right? And so it's up to you as a parent, but that space is created for them. Um, We we do that intentionally. There's wonderful people back there that want to lead and teach your kids, Uh, but this week especially, if if you don't want to have those conversations with your children later, uh, this is your only warning. Sorry, not sorry. So what we're talking about in this series is really simple. How do we not crash our lives? How do we put systems in place so we don't run our lives off a cliff? And just to review, we've said that guardrails are personal. I need guardrails that you don't need. You need guardrails that I don't need. They're not condemning. They're not judgmental. It's just me knowing what I need. And so we put guardrails in the safe zone and not in the danger zone. We put guardrails on the road, not over the cliff, because if a guardrail is over the cliff, it's too late, and it can't keep me from the worst case scenario. And so today, I want to talk about putting guardrails into your marriage. And I know that some of you might want to check out right now because you're not married, but stay with me because today is for people who are married, but it's also for people who hope to be married one day. But it's also for people who might not ever get married, and here's why. We're all around married people, so it's important for us to learn some guardrails for marriage, whether that's our own, whether that's for our future marriage, or to help protect the marriages that are around us. Now, today is not, if you've crashed your marriage, here's how to recover. Today is also not your marriage is on the road, but it's just okay. Here are five practical tips to make your marriage strong. We'll do that at some point. But today is simply, how do I not crash my marriage or other people's marriages? And here's why I want to talk about this. We all know people whose lives have been destroyed because they didn't have guardrails, right? Like we know that there are people in our life, as soon as we start talking about this topic, there's someone that came to mind. And this feels really weird to say out loud, but I was researching adultery this week, and I found out that adultery is actually illegal in the state of Maryland, which is just really bizarre. And the penalty, if you get convicted of adultery in Maryland, $10. That's it. It's 10 bucks. What's even weirder is that uh, three people in 2017 were convicted of adultery and had to pay the state $10. But... For this sermon, I plan to look up a bunch of stats on adultery or sex before marriage or divorce to further prove the importance of guardrails in marriage. But I'm not actually going to share them because we all know the importance. We have seen lives wrecked. We have seen people drive off the cliff, and I don't need to share stats to prove that guardrails are needed. Like, you know the stories. Maybe you've been one of the stories. You know someone that grew up without a dad. You know someone that grew up without a mom. You know someone whose financials are still in shambles because of adultery and divorce. You know someone who is emotionally broken because of adultery in their marriage or adultery in their parents' marriage. 
And I'm going to tell you up front, everything that I'm going to say today when it comes to the practical section of guardrails, as well as the scripture itself, it's going to sound bizarre. And I think that's okay because normal right now is marriage, adultery, divorce. But I think we would all agree that normal isn't working anymore. Like normal is not what we strive for anymore. So when I look at marriage, adultery, divorce, I want to be bizarre. I don't want to be like everyone else, and I don't want that for you either. Because here's the thing, when we read books, when we watch movies, when we watch Netflix, affairs look great. They're entertaining, they look fun, they look passionate. But when it is someone that you are connected to, when someone you know, it's devastating. And movies never show the full impact. So I'm gonna tell you, we're gonna talk about guardrails today that a lot of your friends and your family and your coworkers won't understand. But I believe that if we as a community would live these out and people would see the impact of these guardrails in your life or in your marriage or even in the marriages around us, that they would become contagious. And what would happen is people would grow up with a mom and a dad. There'd be less poverty. There'd be less unwanted pregnancies. There'd be less children in the foster care system. And a whole lot of people, instead of figuring out how to recover from a crash, could spend their time and energy focusing on making the biggest impact they possibly could with the time and resources that they had. Because all of us know someone, or maybe we are someone, whose life would be completely different if they'd established some guardrails. And I already know that I'm touching on some soft spots for a lot of us, but today is not about judging your past or throwing stones at your past. Today is about creating guardrails for the future. We're going to go through a section of the Bible that the Apostle Paul wrote where he talks about marriage. And so here's what Paul knows. He knows that marriage is so intertwined with sex that he's actually going to talk mostly about sex. So what you're gonna see is he goes through these verses and he's really talking about marriage, but to do that, he talks about sex. And to make it even more complicated, he actually uses food as an analogy. And so it's marriage, then sex, then food. Here we go, 1 Corinthians 6, buckle up. This is what he says. He says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. Now, Paul's just saying that you have this argument in your head. We do this all the time. We, we say this phrase, we're Americans. This is what we do. It's my right. I can do anything that I want. So he's calling them out. He's saying, listen, I already know what you're going to say. I already know what you're thinking in your head. He says, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. And this is what Paul eventually will go on to unpack. But what he's saying is, you're allowed to do anything you want. Like, these are your choices. No one puts you in this position. You get to decide. No one's going to force you. But he's going to talk about what's best for you because not everything you want to do is good for you. And he continues, you say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. And Paul is talking to people, and listen, I know there are people that say that the Bible is irrelevant, so you cannot imagine this at all. But he's talking to people who live in a sex-crazed culture. That was Corinth. That's what they were known for. So he's talking to people that, that's part of who they are and part of their city and part of what they're around. And again, you probably can't imagine this or have never encountered anything like this, but he's talking to a culture where people say, I should be able to have sex whenever I want, with whoever I want, and as often as I want, as long as two people who agree. It's a culture full of people who say it doesn't matter and no one should tell us what to do. I can do what I want. And the rationale that they're using in this city is that they're comparing it to food. They're saying, my body needs food, so I give it food. So logically, if my body craves sex, that, that means I'm going to give it sex. And they're just people saying what people say today. Like, you've thought this. You've wondered this. You've hoped this. The same thought has been around for 2,000 years. If I need it, 
I should fulfill it. And see, I think we want sex to be its own thing. We want sex to come without consequences. We want sex to come independent of feelings. We want it to just be a physical act that means nothing, that would never hurt people, that we can just enjoy and move on. That's what people fantasize about. That's what Hollywood portrays. That's what most people try to live out. And the mindset is this. It's like food. My body needs it. I enjoy it. Let's go for it. But Paul continues. He actually continues that verse that he started earlier. He says, you say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. He's going to keep going, but Paul's first point is that God cares about your body. He cares what you do with your body. God created you as he saw fit. I mean, I don't know why your body is shaped like that. I don't know why you have an imperfection that you don't like. But here's what I do know. God created you with a purpose. God created you with intentionality. God created you with love. He loves your body. Your body matters. And Paul explains. He says, and God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. And this is Paul throwing in there a reminder that when Jesus returns, those of us who believe him and have put their faith in him will actually have a physical resurrection. You're not going to end up being some floating spirit that kind of goes off into the sky forever. You will have a physical body when Jesus returns. Your body is important. So when he says the Lord cares about our bodies, this has implications for how I treat my body. In early Christianity, uh, the main heresy was, uh, which means false of belief, was something called Gnosticism. And you don't really hear about Gnosticism today unless you like kind of study these types of things. Nobody says that they're Gnostic. It's not really a thing anymore. But Gnosticism taught that physical is bad and spiritual is good. And the idea of Gnosticism is that all we need to do is grow in knowledge. That was like their main focus was like kind of the things in your mind, your thoughts, but it had nothing to do with the physical life that you had and how you actually interacted with people. And so today, people wouldn't necessarily claim to be Gnostic, but there's actually a similar idea among Christians today that Jesus only cares about your soul, and that's it. But what Paul is doing, he's refuting that. He's saying that that's not true. He's saying that God cares about your body, that it's important to him. Jesus himself said, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with your body, which means that you need to take care of yourself physically as well. See, I'm under the conviction that this scripture and many other places in the Bible teach us that one of the ways we honor Jesus is by taking care of ourselves physically, right? And and that's one of the reasons why he compared it to sex, because he's saying, like, this is a physical act. You need to treat your body the right way when it comes to sex. But it's also other places in the Bible where it says, take care of yourself. We should get enough sleep. We should care what we put into our body. We should be physically active because God cares about your body. I don't think it's bad to want to look good in front of a mirror, but it's deeper than that. God cares about my body. That's why I should take care of it. This is why you should not self-harm. This is why you don't cut yourself. It's not just because you're not supposed to. It's bigger than that. God gives you a body that he's proud of. He thinks you're beautiful. He loves it. He sent his son to die for it. So when you cut yourself to make the physical pain distract from the emotional pain, you are telling God that he made a mistake and you are hurting the body he created with love. He created intentionally. And he'll deal with the emotional pain. He can handle that. But as he handles that, don't do something he created, don't hurt something that he created as good. God cares about your body. It's not spiritual good and physical bad. It's all intertwined. You will have a physical body when Jesus returns. So your body now and how you treat it should reflect that God created it, he redeemed it, and he cares about it. You can't separate what God does in you spiritually and what God does in you physically because they're connected. And because the spiritual and physical are connected, Paul starts talking about sex. 
He says, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. This is what Paul is saying, and this is super weird. He's saying, would Jesus ever have sex with a prostitute? Like that, that's what he's saying to this group of people. And the answer is, of course not. It's not even fathomable. In fact, the idea that he even makes that comparison is incredibly offensive, but that's the point. Paul's saying, if you've given your life to Jesus, you are the body of Christ, so treat it that way. And then he continues. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one with her body. For the scriptures say, the two are united into one. Now he's addressing people who think like we do in our culture. People who think that it would be so nice and convenient if sex was just its own thing. If sex was just a physical act that I could have with whoever, whenever, and it satisfied my physical desire and I could move on with my day and my life didn't hurt anything. Like it didn't have an impact anywhere else. But here's what he's saying. It's not like food. It it unites you on a deeper soul level with someone. Sex is a super glue for a relationship. It joins you to someone. And what's funny is that even, even Hollywood understands this. Every few years, a movie comes out about friends with benefits. A few years ago, two movies came out like in the same summer. They were both terrible movies, but the whole point was the same. It's friends that live together or friends that work together or they go to the gym. And at some point they say, hey, I don't wanna date you. I don't wanna have a relationship, but maybe we can just have sex with no strings attached and it won't impact anything. We can date other people and our lives will be perfect. Everything will be okay, but it never works, right? It doesn't even work in Hollywood because they know there's something about the nature of sex that bonds you to another person. It's never just sex. There's always something going on on a spiritual level and on a physical level. When you have sex, the the chemical release in your brain is oxytocin. And as neuroscientists have studied this, they've realized that the same part of your brain that lights up during sex is the same part of your brain that lights up when you do heroin. And they've said that oxytocin has an addictive type quality to it that will bond you to whatever is in front of you. In fact, a study came out a few years ago where they studied the addictive nature of oxytocin and pornography. They wanted to find out how pornography affects the body, so they brought in some people to take part of a study. And what they did was they actually hooked them up to all kinds of wires to measure how they would respond physiologically to watching pornography. They put them in front of a screen, that's what they turned on. And what they found was no surprise, their palms began to sweat, their pupils dilated, their hearts began to beat faster. A couple weeks later in the study, or after the study, they brought everyone back in. And here's what they hadn't told them, which was actually the whole point of the study. When they had the pornography on the computer screen, they'd actually taken a baseball cap and put it on top of the computer. It had nothing to do with what was on the screen. They didn't say anything about the baseball cap. The baseball cap just happened to be there. They simply told people to look at the screen, and that was all. And when the people came back in, they hooked them back up to the wires again, and then handed them the baseball cap, this time with a blank screen with nothing on, And what they found was that as soon as they had the baseball cap in their hands, their palms began to sweat, their pupils dilated, and their heart began to beat faster. Because sex is designed to attach you to someone else that's in front of you. And if you use it or abuse it, it will attach you to whatever is. It will attach you to a phone. It will attach you to a baseball cap. It will attach you to a person. That is how God, God designed it. And so that's why Paul says this. He says, no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. 
Now, I love that he uses the word sin because he's trying to let them know, like, this is out of alignment with what God wants for your life, right? It's not some arbitrary rule that he made up so people stop having fun. He's saying this matters. Like, this is important because this hurts you. Now, we know, like, the the impact of sin is that it tends to hurt other people, right? It's one of the reasons why we're told not to sin is because the impact is on us, bigger than that, we hurt other people, and that's not what God wants. But sexual sin is something that not only hurts the other person, but it hurts us as well. It's attaching you to things and people that you don't want to be attached to. And when he says this phrase, sexual immorality, it's it's a really broad word, but in the original language, which is the Greek, it actually refers to anything sexual that's outside of God's plan. It can refer to fantasies, lust, adultery, pornography, sex before marriage, all of it. It all hurts you. And then Paul continues, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. I love Paul's approach here. He says, don't you realize, right? He's not mad at them. He's not shaming them. He's not, you knew better. I already told you. It's none of those things. He's saying, don't you realize? He's saying, like, maybe no one told you this before, but this is really important. Maybe you don't know, and I can teach you this thing. Don't you realize? And then he continues, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Now, the verses that we just read through, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, uh, really are the New Testament sexual ethic. And people will come up to me, and it doesn't matter what topic. It could be sex, it could be guardrails, it could be forgiveness. It doesn't matter. But oftentimes I'll I'll have people come up to the lobby or send me emails, and they'll say, hey, Michael, I hear what you're saying about the Bible, but for my situation, it's just a little bit different. Right? It doesn't matter the topic. It can be sex or it could be a hundred other things. I oftentimes get those responses. Hey, it's different for me. Right? Everybody, it doesn't matter who you are, says that. I have straight people that say that and gay people who say that. There's young people, old people, single people, married people, divorced people. Everybody says to me at some point or the other that for my situation or this situation or her situation or their situation, it's unfair. It's too difficult. It's not possible. Everybody thinks at some point that they're getting the short end of the stick. But what God is saying through Paul is that this isn't about your feelings. This isn't about the way you feel. This is about truth. This is about a reality. This is about science, right? He's saying this isn't about your feelings. Now think about this. Paul says to talk about marriage, we're going to talk about sex because sex has so much power to build or destroy a marriage. But then he says to talk about sex, we're going to talk about food. So why does he talk about food? Think about it. If I just followed my feelings with food, like if I personally, Michael, just followed my feelings with food, I would eat nothing but junk food all the time. I would eat sugary goodness for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I would never drink water again. I think water's stupid. I hate it. I would never drink water again. My refrigerator would dispense Mountain Dew. Judge me, don't care. My feelings, my decisions. Ultimately, I'd end up dying at a really young age because if I just followed my momentary fleeting feelings when it comes to food, I would be horribly unhealthy. Like if I followed my feelings of how I feel when I'm happy, when I'm sad, whatever, I would be unhealthy. And so Paul is saying, listen, sex is so much more powerful than food. It's not even in the same universe when it comes to its implications or repercussions. So don't follow your momentary fleeting feelings because you will get hurt. And because sex has so much power and because I can't follow my own feelings or I'll hurt myself or other people and I don't want to ruin my marriage or run it off a cliff or someone else's marriage into a ditch, I need some practical guardrails to prevent me from doing that. And that's what Paul does. He sets up a clear guardrail, and it's very simple. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Run from sexual sin. 
It is that simple. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. Sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. It hurts you. So he doesn't say flirt with sexual sin. He doesn't even say resist sexual sin. He says, get out of there. Run. Run as far as you can. Run from sexual sin. To make this practical for us, uh, here's what I did. I talked to some people in my life who have marriages that I admire and I asked them to give me some of the guardrails they have set up in their marriage. So I'm gonna spend the last few minutes giving you guardrails that they encouraged me to have because I wanna have a healthy marriage. I wanna have the best marriage possible. And so I'd encourage you to write these down. Uh, They're gonna be up on the screen. You can take a picture at the very end. We'll have the full list if you wanna take a picture of that. Whatever helps you take these home and wrestle with them. Just like we said today and over the past few weeks, guardrails are personal. So I'm not telling you that you have to do these. That'll never happen in this series when we finish it up next week. I'm never gonna tell you what you need to do when it comes to your guardrails. In fact, my friends told me that this is what works for them, but didn't tell me that I have to do these. They just shared them. But the hope is some of them or some variation of them works for you and your marriage or your future marriage. So guardrail number one, the most common one they said was don't be alone with the opposite sex. This was by far, in a way, the most common response. This is the Billy Graham rule that I talked about two weeks ago. If you weren't here, check it out. We talk about how we have that on our staff, how we create that culture on our staff. And if you think about it, it's obvious. If you don't want to have an affair with someone of the opposite sex, don't be alone with someone of the opposite sex, right? It's super simple, but it's still something that we have to talk about, right? It's still something that we have to present and put as number one on our list of guardrails. If you're never alone with them, you can never have an affair, and it all just works out kind of great. And again, this can be awkward. It can be weird. When Ray and I were newlyweds and living up in Ohio, we didn't have a kitchen table. And one afternoon while Ray was at work, I got a text from my friend Nicole, who I'd known since I was about 14, but we actually worked together at the same church in Ohio. And she told me that she found like the perfect table for our house at a neighborhood yard sale. And so I jumped in my truck and I headed that way. And when I got there, the table was ready to be loaded in my truck. So I paid, shook the guy's hand and got ready to leave. But before I could hop into my truck, we actually bumped into a woman who went to the church that we both worked in. And so we talked for a few minutes, and then I got ready to head out. And as I jumped in my truck, she asked me why I wasn't going, giving Nicole a ride to her car, which was just a few blocks away. And so I explained to her the guardrail, but she kept pushing. You're not going to give her a ride to, your, to her car? Chivalry must be dead. It's just a few blocks. Even after explaining it to her and how working at Momentum meant that we had a Billy Graham rule, she just didn't get it. And maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you hear me talking about this and you feel the same way. You don't understand. Or you know there are people in your life that will feel the same way. Because not being alone with someone of the opposite sex sounds insane. But can't you think of someone you wish had had this rule? Isn't there someone in your life that you wish put this guardrail in place? In fact, just two summers ago, I was back up in Cleveland to preach at that church. And I bumped into the woman who was super pushy that day. And as we caught up, one of the things she told me that she was, was that she was going through a divorce because her husband had had an affair with a coworker. And listen, I'm not saying that her not caring about my guardrails, my personal guardrails, led to that in her marriage. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. I don't think those necessarily are totally connected. But I can guarantee you that if I reminded her of that interaction at the yard sale, she would feel completely different today. Guardrail number two, don't privately communicate with someone of the opposite sex. And I know this might not be 100% possible because of work situations, so this is actually really meant in like a social or a casual way. And this guardrail applies to social media, but really the people who suggested it talked mostly about texting, 
right? Because social media, your, your spouse or your significant other can probably see what you're saying, but texting is private. There's really no way to offer that up to someone else. And so they don't text the opposite sex socially. They don't text the opposite sex just to see what's up. They don't text the opposite sex on behalf of their spouse. And what I'm saying is that I don't ask my wife to text my friends because I'm busy, right? Like I'm about to hop and shout, hey, will you text CT? Will you do this? I don't do that. That's not how we do things. But if they do text someone of the opposite sex, they include their own spouse on it so everybody is aware of the conversation. And the reason why they do that is because they don't want to intentionally or unintentionally start some private line of communication that could blossom into who knows what. Like I said, I know these guardrails are weird, but here's why I want a guardrail, because you and I both know this girl. You know her, you can picture her. She didn't have a dad growing up, or maybe her father was abusive or neglectful, and so she would sleep with anybody and everybody in the school. And she knew her reputation, she felt the shame, but it was all worth it to her because of that fleeting moment where she felt connected and accepted by a man. And so for me, if being weird means my girls grow up with a mom and dad, who love them and love each other, I'm totally fine with that. Number three, limit or don't even use social media. Now, a few of them said that they don't do social media. Most of them have it, but they say they barely use it at all. They put guardrails in their social media. And it sounded unusual, but then I actually did some research and it made sense because research actually suggests that there's a direct correlation between how much time you spend on social media and how unhappy you are in your marriage. And the reason why is because you're looking at great photos of everyone else's perfect marriage, you're gonna be unhappy with yours. In fact, this tells me that if you're unhappy in your marriage, you should probably get off social media for a while. You should probably purge all the people on social media that you're secretly envious of so you're not playing the comparison game. Or this, you've heard this story before. You're bored, so you're scrolling and clicking and you find yourself looking at pictures of your ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend, you message them, just say, hey, I saw your picture, hope everything's going well. But that turns into, I think about you too. And that turns into, I'm gonna be in town. And that turns into, hey, we just went off a cliff. In fact, the number one word in divorce filings 10 years ago was money. Do you know what the number one word in divorce filings is today? Facebook. It's Facebook. So I advise you, if you think you need social media to keep your marriage or maybe even your job, if you, but to keep your marriage from going off a cliff, I would encourage you to have periods of time each month where you intentionally don't use it. And I'm not talking about the 10 minutes in the bathroom where you forgot your phone right? Intentionally putting boundaries in place. The new iPhone lets you set time limits and it tells you you have one hour. When the hour's up, it turns off your social media. Yes, you can turn it back on, but hopefully you have a little bit more self-control with that because it reminds you every 15 minutes, hey, you did this once, you did this again, you did this again, but you need to put boundaries in place. You need to take multiple days where you say that you're going to focus on the people that are right in front of you. Number four, this is mostly for single people, marriage people. I shouldn't need to say this out loud, but I'm going to do it anyways. Don't use swiping apps. Right, if you're married, this is understood, right? Yes, okay. So also if you're single, don't use swiping apps. And here's why, I know couples who met online and have healthy marriages, but I don't know any marriages, and I'm sure they exist, but I don't know a single marriage that met through a swiping app. All the ones I know have used a website that's deeper than that, where you actually fill out information about yourself and your personality, there's algorithms, there's science involved to try and connect you with someone on a deeper level than just the first picture looking good. Because here's what's happening. When you use a swiping app, it's as if you're going to a party with 100 people and at least 98 of them are there because they just wanna have sex with someone else at that party before they leave. And you walk into that party and you start praying, Jesus, will you bring me someone who loves you? Good luck. 
Because the reality is there could be people there that do love Jesus, but they are not living the life that you need to be living. They're not walking in alignment with him. They're not going down the same path you're gonna want to go down. If you go that route and you want to do that thing, good luck. In fact, I have friends who do that. And like, man, I can't find the one. I'm like, dude, really? Like, you're not gonna find it when you're just doing this all day long, looking for the person that you think God wants for you. And here's the last one. This is a good one. Communicate about important things. And this is a positive guardrail. This is really the guardrail you set up in front of the other guardrails. Communicate about important things so you don't communicate those things with other people and build something bad out of that. Right, so that's saying when you have those rough days, when you have those hard moments, you're not going to your coworker of the opposite sex. Right, you're not going to that person, even though you bump into them a lot, even though they might be one of those five people that you spend the most of your time with. You're saying when you need to communicate about things, the first person you go to is the person you're in a relationship with. One couple I talked to said that they have monthly budget meetings where they communicate about money because they know money is a big stress in their life. One couple explained that in their weekly rhythm, she gets a night out with the girls and he gets a night out with the guys to make sure they're emotionally full. One thing that most of the people brought up was that people, people that I respect share their passwords with other people. Nothing's off limits. There's nothing to hide. But they share their passwords to social media, email, iCloud, so they know what apps the other person is downloading. And I know when you hear that, it sounds weird. But think about it. If your spouse comes to you and says, here are my passwords, I have nothing to hide, I would actually like for you to check in a couple times a year just to show you that I have nothing to hide, that doesn't show a lack of trust. That builds trust. In fact, a lot of my single friends who have a ton of wisdom do the same thing. They go to a trusted friend, they give them their password and say, I have nothing to hide. Here are my passwords, check my history, check my social media anytime you want. That's called accountability. And accountability creates trust. Trust builds character. Character deepens relationships. And here's, here's what I know. If you look at this list uh, right now, in a room like this with people like us, <laughs> broken, misfit people, there are multiple people in this room who are about to go off a cliff. You've already busted through the guardrail, and if you don't watch out, a gentle breeze will blow you off the edge. I don't think it's a mistake that you're here. I believe God brought you here to show you and let you know that it's not too late, that you can back up from that cliff and you can run. And you can run as far as you can in the other direction and then put up healthy guardrails so you don't put yourself in the same situation again. You don't have to crash. It's not too late. And I also know that in a room like this, a lot of us have already crashed. We've crashed ourselves. We've crashed other people. But here's the good news, verse 20. For God bought you with a high price. That means there is grace for however many times you've crashed. See, the high price was Jesus' body. God doesn't save you on some neat, weird, spiritual level. He saved you on a physical level. The physical body of Jesus suffered, bled, and was executed for you. And that paid the penalty for your sins so that you could have grace if you trust him. That means your past can be wiped clean. That means your sin is paid for. That means you can have the relationship with God that you are actually designed to have. That also means that no crash is too frequent or too severe for God to forgive it. That's why every single week we talk about checking the baptism box and giving your life to Jesus. Because without him, I hope you can recover from that crash because I don't think you can. In fact, some of you would say that you're in that space right now trying to figure out if you can do it by yourself and you realize that you can't, the answer is Jesus. Because with him, there's forgiveness every single day of the week. Now, no one here has been perfect, but what you can do today is you can start putting up guardrails. You can put up guardrails for your marriage, 
You can put up guardrails for your future marriage or really for the marriages around you. And today specifically, I think guardrails kind of look like this. There's a turn in the bend coming up and I keep seeing car after car after car go off the road. So before I even get there, I'm gonna put up a guardrail because I don't want to end up like that. I'm scared I will end up like that. And so in faith, I'm gonna put up a guardrail so I can go where God wants me to be and have a better future. Because remember, nobody ever plans to crash their life. People crash their lives because they don't plan not to. So will you have the courage and the wisdom and the humility to ask God what guardrails you need in your life and trust that he will use you to do great things in your relationships and in your friends' relationships because of that. Let's pray. God, um, for being honest, we don't really want to talk about sex. <laughs> God, it's a topic that, um, that we don't want to talk with our friends about. We don't want to talk with our family about, even person we're in a relationship with God, let alone at church. Um, but God, I'm so thankful that there's a space where we can have these conversations. And God, I'm so thankful that as we, as we read the Bible and we, we read what Paul writes, he's talking to people, uh, even though 2,000 years ago, he's talking to people that get it. He's talking to a, a culture that devalues sex and the importance of that connection, the importance of, of how you made it. And so God, we're thankful that we have that challenge from Paul to flee from sexual morality God, but ultimately, we all know, too, that we're just going to fall short. God, that even though we set up guardrails and even though we do our best, we're going to have moments of weakness. We're going to have moments of pain. And so, God, ultimately, we're thankful for grace. God, we don't want to crash, and we certainly want to crash less often. But we're thankful that even if we crash, whether it's with sex or anything else in our life, God, that you'll pick us back up. You'll offer us grace, that you paid the debt that our sin creates. God, help us figure out how to put guardrails in our life, uh, whether that's for our marriage or for our future marriage, or really uh, put guardrails up so we can protect our friends and family who are married. God, help us figure out how to do that this week. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.